Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Pantassi. My guest today is Stephen Hart, the author of Au Naturel, Naturism, Nudism, and Tourism in 20th Century France, and the book was published by Louisiana State University Press in 2014. Hi there, Steve. Hi, Roxanne. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Uh, Thank you for interviewing me. I wonder if you could get us started by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and what got you interested in working on France. Sure. Um, I'm one of those great examples of somebody who started not knowing anything about France, which I guess is all of us at some point. Um, But I started taking French in college because I wanted to figure out what all those French words in the 19th century novels um, I'd been reading in high school were, were supposed to mean. And I happened to land in a, a beginning, you know, really French 101 class with Janina Traxler, and she's a fabulous professor. And by the time I graduated, I had majored in French as well as history and actually did master's work in both um, as a result of the experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, what got you interested in the subject of this book in particular? Um, I had taken German and Danish in graduate school, and there was a couple of mentions in the course of the semester about um, widespread nudism in along Danish beaches and in, in northern Germany. And then as I was doing dissertation research um, in Alsace in the 19, early 1990s, um, I did a lot of bike riding. And I came across what I later found out was one of the earliest of, of uh, the naturist sites that was established in, in Alsace, at least um, in the modern period. Um, and it, I'd talk with people and I, I kept getting, you know, sporadic references. So I, I sort of pulled those together when I finished, um, a, a different project and thought, you know, there, there must be more to this. And the more I read, the more I learned and the more interesting it got. Um, and like a lot of things we do it resulted in a book. Mm-hmm. I wanted to start. Steve, by asking you a question about your note on usage, um, it's not usually a question I ask authors, but at the very <laughs> beginning of the book, it's quite entertaining, your note on usage, uh, maybe the most entertaining one I've ever read. Um, and it gets at some of the terms you use in the book and at some of the issues that are at stake in, in this history that you're exploring. And in it, you talk about the relationship between these different terms, naturism and nudism, and the way that those terms are or aren't used in French. And I wondered if you could just say a few words about that. Yes, of course. I mean, the, the wonderful thing about cultural history is it's attuned us all into um, analyzing the simplest of words and, and thinking about, you know, the, the, the various meanings embedded. And, you know, in this case, it starts with the title of the book. Au naturel is not an expression in France that has anything to do with nudism. It, it basically means unseasoned, like if you buy ton au naturel, you're buying unseasoned tuna. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it, it uh, involves the, the, the simple word naturism, which basically means nudism in France. Um, and that is a result of some of the changes that I describe in the book, a way of making nudism palatable after World War II by 
by emphasizing its natural qualities. But of course, it, it means something to um, Anglo-American speakers, but, but not much in France. Um, and then there are simple terms that I think have to be described and are, are, are say something about the historical reality. So um, one of those that I, I have to describe at the beginning is sleep. Um, looks like the you know the English word slip, mm-hmm. but you know, it's not a women's undergarment. It, in France, it means kind of a brief underwear, male or female. Um, and you know, I could have translated as speedo, but speedo um, is. Uh, of course, a brand name, and mm-hmm. it's a later phenomenon. So brief, you know, has you thinking about, you know, male tidy whities you know. <laughs> so I went ahead and described that I'm going to use the term sleep, and then I go ahead and, and, and put it in the text. So um, I'm glad you liked it. Um, and it was like the rest of the book, fun to write. But it, in this case, I thought it was really necessary to hit some of the key terms at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And so those words, naturism, nudism, what... How, what's the distinction between those two? It's a, it's a great question, and it morphs constantly over time. So um, in, the, uh, in the interwar years and then after 1945 in French, um, nudism is a little harsher. Um, to get to that harshness today, you'd have to go to a term like apoilism, as in the term apoil, you know, hmm. uh, down to the hair or down to the skin. Um, and... So naturism sounded more palatable. It emphasizes the, the natural. Um, but then in English, um, the temptation would be to say, my temp- I would be tempted to say that, that nudism is basically naturism. And on the most simple level, we could translate it directly. Hmm. But then naturism exists. And for a while, um, in the interwar years, uh, meant something. I'm relying on Brian Hoffman's dissertation for this and his, his forthcoming book, which is just going to be excellent. Um, Naturism um, could mean more natural as compared to nudism, mm. um, and but that shifts according to him, and I, I think he's absolutely right. By the 1990s, where nudism became palatable, and naturism implied something that was a little bit more sexual than nudism. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like so many terms, they they vary massively over time. And you know, the great thing about history is that we. We try to nail down what somebody or what a series of people meant at a given point in time, because it usually reveals deeper meanings. Mm-hmm. You make the point early on in the introduction, and you come back to this throughout the book, Steve, that the exposure of the body and the sexualization of the body are not the same thing. And I wanted to ask you about that, and as well to ask you about the role that, um, well, about your theoretical framework and how you're approaching the question of sexuality throughout the book, including. Um, the references that you make to uh, Michel Foucault's history of sexuality. And I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit about how Foucault is working for you, um, what, how you see the book as in dialogue with and perhaps a type of history of sexuality. Yes, of course. Um, the, the most salient fact, and I'm here I'm describing the, the, the broader book project, is mm-hmm. that for many of the, the naturistes, um, they insisted, and very often I would take them at their word, um, that nudism is not necessarily sexual. And the kind of way that I could help to make that argument for them would be to point out, you know, if you go to the doctor, it's it's for most people um, not a, a very sexualized experience. So in that particular context, nudism does not have a connection to sexuality. And they say that it doesn't need to, that in fact it doesn't. Now, you know, in other cultural contexts, people do draw the distinction. 
But Foucault became very helpful for me in that um, he doesn't assume either uh, a liberation that occurs um, in the earlier period, you know, when we usually talk about Foucault and the shift from the 18th into the 19th century, nor a, a, a later shift um, after World War II. Um, the, the notion of liberation is, is way too big. It, it tries to do too much. It's got too many connections. Um, because a more exposed body is not necessarily a more liberated one. And an example I could give from early Naturiste camps um, would be, um, and this came from, from Madame Lecoq, um, who was uh, uh, the, the, the spouse of one of the founders of the movement, in the, in, at least after 1945, that in the interwar years for a couple, a man and a woman, to hold hands in certain camps would have been considered too sexual. So, you know, you can you can take your clothes off, but you may not even hold hands um, because that might be indicating something else or where eye contact takes place. You know, if people are clothed, eyes could easily wander a little bit as long as they don't stare at certain body parts. But that would become a much more fraught um, practice, uh, sort of eyes wandering in uh, one of the early nudist camps. So. So on the one hand, you could say that it's liberation, but on the other, it may mean more rules or different rules. And um, I'm with Foucault in thinking that um, he doesn't exactly say it this way. We all take liberties with theorists. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know, there's a uh, there's there's kind of a way that people make their own codes, um, certain rules um, in certain places, in certain groups. Um, we, we we like to figure out what the rules of the game are. And so as the body became more exposed, for some, it became more sexualized, particularly if you're thinking about commercial expressions, you know, since the, the 1970s in, in France um, and elsewhere. Um, but for many, it didn't. It depends. You say that after World War II, France became the foremost nudist tourist destination in Europe. Um, so I have a few questions about this. I mean, the book goes from the interwar years to the um, to the mid seventies, really. So I wanted to ask you about that chronological framework, and then you know, why does France become the <laughs> foremost nudist tourist destination in Europe after World War II? So in there, in the middle, in there, <laughs> that happens. So so yeah, those two questions. Yes, of course. Um, the the with the timeline, I wanted to start in nineteen twenty seven because that's when the the, the first major figures that I introduce into the book, um, first championed um, nudism in France. So those would be the, the Deville brothers and uh, Marcel Quienne de Monjou. Mm-hmm. And it just so happens they both championed the practice in 1927. One, the Deville took a, a, a little different route. Quienne de Monjou will continue to champion it in um, uh, mixed sex uh, uh, and uh, nudism in groups. Um, in the late 1920s and, and 1930s. Um, it had been a practice, of course, already in Germany from the turn of the century on. Um, and they, in the early years, actually, the, the French uh, proponents would mention the German example, um, beginning in, oh, just coincidentally, the spring of 1933, <laughs> particularly mm-hmm. as, as the Nazis were consolidating power, um, they'll deny that there's any kind of linkage or that there was a German model for it. Um, that's pretty transparent, I think. Um, but I wanted to, to, to start when there was this um, organized advocacy and practices in groups. 
It doesn't mean that there wasn't what you know Americans call skinny. And when I say North Americans, I always mean um, North. When I say Americans, I always mean North Americans mm-hmm. and Canadians. Um, what uh, Americans call skinny dipping certainly occurred um, probably for centuries. We, we've got um, evidence of regulation in various areas that became bourgeois resorts in the 19th century. Um, it's definitely a, a practice. And then it could have a political and social message among the libertaires, so people who we probably call libertarian socialists, um, anarchists, but not necessarily um, people who are blowing up um, things. Um, so the the, the uh, 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 sort of reformist um, embracing of certain utopian notions mm-hmm. uh, referred to as naturiste um, in early 20th century France. And I really wanted to not deal with the 19th century phenomenon because um, Arnaud Bobereau has done a terrific book in which he handles that very well. But at the point that literally it became nudism. And then for the the other, you asked about both bookends. For the second of the bookends, um, I chose the early 1970s because there was a uh, an international nudist conference. It was actually held at Cup Dog, one of the sites that... Um, uh, known for, um, that, in fact, the site where they're, they're not only known for nudism, but um, the largest installation, more visitors um, to this day than elsewhere. Um, and that had become kind of a, an urban installation with um, several story department buildings, cement everywhere. And ironically, at the meeting in 1974, they decided that they were about environmentalism, which in some way was like a return to the roots of the movement. Um, and it's ironic that it's occurring in a cemented in installation. Um, but that uh, was accompanied by uh, another of the installations was called Montali Bay over on the Aquitaine coast. And a second um, major camp was developed there, welcoming, you know, up to 20,000 people called Uronat. That opened at about the same time. So it shows a level of legitimacy a state stamp of approval on the movement. Mm-hmm. Um, but then finally, you know, I, I think historians of modern France would agree, even though we have a hard time putting our, our, our um, finger on it, something um, important shifted in France. Um, we like to think of it as being 1968. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that the, the calls that, that culminated in um, uh, the events of spring of 1968 were, you know, that was already occurring. Um, and it occurred afterwards. So there is a what is sometimes referred to as a liberation again. I mean, it's funny how people have to keep being liberated and it means something <laughs> different over time. Right. I'm a kind of a liberation of mores. I don't know. I mean, in some ways it's liberating. In other ways, um, it is uh, just a shift. There's more openness about practices that have been widespread since the beginning of humankind. Mm-hmm. Um, so as, com- as compared to the 19th century, there may be more explicit references and admission of what's going on. Um, in some cases in France, it's actually, I think, the influence of um, the power of social sciences. You know, social scientists say, let's examine a practice without judging it first, mm-hmm. rather than, you know, a more um, traditionally moralistic approach, which, you know, is widespread still in, in, in the U.S. on a lot of issues. that says we don't think people should do it. Therefore, um, we're going to have to keep people from doing it. And so something shifted in the late 60s and early 1970s. I thought it was easier because of that conference and the opening of Roanoke to, to pin it down to 1974. Um, but, um, you know, it, sometime in that period of the late 60s and 1970s. And, you know, that's the beauty of an epilogue because they allow us to kind of fill it in and, mm-hmm. you know, develop it. And we don't have to be, uh, we're not under the same constraints of saying, you know, 
well, it's definitely this year or that year, because some of these phenomena, like, you know, how people take off their clothes on beaches, um, is pretty fluid, <laughs> particularly sure. in the 1970s. And so why is this a French phenomenon? Oh, yeah, the second part of your question. Um, it, it's a very good question. Um, I, I don't want to oversimplify, um, but uh, these are practices that were not in the interwar years um, or in the 1950s or 1960s permissible in those other places that Northern Europeans like to go, Italy um, and Spain. And uh, there would be, there, there, later there'll, there'll be uh, developments um, in what is today Croatia, you know, on the Yugoslavian coast. But the, the primary magnet um, was France, uh, because France in various ways permitted it, um, particularly after 1945. Um, I start the book with a quote by a German um, from 1963 in which he describes France has it all. You know, it's got oceans, it's got, I mean, it's got the Atlantic, it's got the Mediterranean, it's got mountains, it's got joie de vivre, it's got a certain live and let live, kind of a notion of liberty. And, you know, while maybe he's exaggerating a little bit, there is a sense for a lot of the Northern Europeans, particularly the Germans, which make up the largest numbers, that that France was offering kind of a, a, a relaxation, an approach that was somewhat less rigid um, than they expected. Sometimes they'll even say words like liberty, democracy. Um, and, you know, it, it's in a vague way, so that, that I don't want to exaggerate it. But um, France had the climate, um, not quite Spain or Italy, but in the summer it's quite warm. And it had, according to many uh, Northern Europeans, this sense of, you know, people aren't going to bug you, kind of a, you know, the, a looseness about, about practices. And whether France was a particularly loose place or not, it, their presence and the fact that they pro- bought, brought um, uh, hard currency meant that French nudists, who, of course, had been around since the interwar years, could use that. Um, interest on the part of international visitors to press for legitimacy. And they do it at the municipal level. Municipalities see that they can gain, because these are inevitably out-of-the-way places. There's no reason for, I don't know, Nice um, to bother. I mean, they have plenty of tourists already, but these out-of-the-way places are very interested. And they can use it, the, the, the local nudists, I mean, the French nudists can use it, and uh, some people who are actually based in, in these communities can use it to argue that they need accommodation and municipalities work with the prefects. And it really happens on the ground in a very um, case by case here and there, very direct kind of way that ultimately by the 1960s gets integrated into these um, plans to remake the French coast first in Languedoc, Roussillon, and then in Aquitaine um, to make them uh magnets for international and domestic French tourists. So, I mean, of course, the book is located, focused on France, but you also make the point in the introduction, and you kind of carry this throughout, that this is a transnational history, and that one of the things that distinguishes the book from previous work on these movements and activities is that that work has has tended to be, um, the historiography has tended to be national. So uh, what, what can you tell us about that, about how this book is a transnational history of nudism? Yes. Um, I, you know, 
that there you're, you're absolutely right. I, I do make the argument that there we've tended to see this as as national. Um, there's very little literature on nudism and historical literature on nudism in France. You could get the impression from it that there wasn't much going on. Um, quite a bit more on Germany, um, and of course it was a, a more important phenomenon in Germany, but it also um, uh, has had caught scholars' eye. Uh, caught scholars' eyes sooner um, in terms of, of projects. Um, about half of the nudists who came to France in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, and up to the present are international, that is, outside of, of, of France. Um, today, we might say they're European because that's where most of them were coming from um, at the time until you know the European Union really took form and increasingly could argue for something like a European identity. They, they were simply referred to as foreigners, and they um, it's a it's a movement of people um, like some of the studies that that have appeared in the last ten years on immigration or migration that um, can be traced through transnational history, and that, you know that we have a tendency among historians to thankfully. Um, kind of poo-poo, new, faddish words. We're not big fans of neologisms. But I think transnationalism's got something going for it. Um, judiciously used, it allows us to capture realities that we could tend to want to beat into the form of national histories, this or that. Um, you know, there's an early predecessor, earlier predecessor to transnational history, comparative history. My dissertation and first book were in the field of comparative history. There was a way that that was very much tracing developments in two different national contexts. Um, and sometimes, I mean, there's really superb work, but sometimes it could seem a little bit like, you know, this country has apples and this other country also has fruit and they're oranges. And this is what an apple looks like. And this is what an orange looks like. And, you know, there, it, it, you know we, we made some important contributions with that model. But it didn't allow us to deal as much with the, 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 a transnational movement of people and to track particularly their own constructions of identity as mm-hmm. they were moving in different parts of the world. It, the first couple of chapters of the book, Steve, focus on this interwar period. And you talk about the Durville brothers and Marcel Kinney de, de Mongeau. And I guess I want to start by asking you just sort of in general about the interwar years whether you see the, maybe it's, I'm thinking about this because of the centenary of the beginning of World War One that, you know, is what happens um, in the history of nudism in the interwar years a legacy of World War One? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, you know, it's always hard for historians because we, we imply causation by talking about one thing after another. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Since I'm talking about 1927, you know, sometimes I think that, you know, World War I was, was a, the Great War at the time. And I didn't realize World War II was coming. Um, you know, the, the, the Great War may have had an influence in the way that, as you yourself know through, through your own work, um, in imagining the future, um, in laying out certain ways of, of improving um, the, 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 the body of society, both in the collective, but also in the very narrow and individual, individual, um, sense. Um, and, but then in, in this case, in the case of Newsom, one of the things I find, um, remarkable is that, you know, the DeVille brothers are very much about, you know, eating properly and getting plenty of exercise. Um, 
and they, they're talking constantly about bodies and improvement of bodies. But you would go through their um, interwar publications, and the same is true of Kini de Monjo, looking for any sign that there were severely maimed bodies in their society, and it's just not there. So at the same time that we'll call them your guys, your guys are developing prosthetics. My guys are completely ignoring them. Mm. And so there's there's a sense that, you know, the World War, you know, may have had an impact. Um, but if we look at the long-term continuities, at the Libertaire, we're already pushing um, the envelope before 1945. Things were developing in Germany already before, I'm sorry, I said before 1945, I meant before 1914. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, nudism was developing in Germany um, before um, 1914. I, I'm reluctant to attribute the, the 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 changes necessarily to to the Great War. Certainly, um, the interwar years, the 30s as much as the 20s, were a period of of much change in how the world was perceived. You know, there's a great deal of ideological shifting that was going on. And certainly, we'll call them my guys, were reflecting um, many of those broader discussions that were happening in society. Mm-hmm. And so to sort of focus on your guys um, <laughs> in this period, what's the yeah. difference between them? I mean, what is the what are the what's the spectrum of nudism in the interwar years? And you know, if you can tell us about the Durville brothers um, and Kine de Mongeau, how do they represent different aspects of this movement and these activities? Yes, yeah, so they they make kind of a nice contrast. The Durville brothers, because you know they're starting at approximately the same time, and the Durville brothers were doctors, and this is a period when when the allopathic model had not yet really become dominant you know so these guys are pretty close to some homeopathic doctors that i know today Mm. and you know the organism had to be kept in balance it wasn't about you know treating a part but instead treating the whole and so their their vision is very prescriptive you know you should eat these things they have long lists of things you can eat things you can't eat how much exercise you should get um how you should sleep um you know with the window open um and they they embrace in 1927 um, nude exercise um, in groups, mixed sex groups as well. They quickly back away from it because they get a pushback from the, the, the prefect of police of Paris who had authorization over an area that they had wanted to set up a, a, a camp out in the department of saint was And they, as doctors, and it's very prosperous ones, actually, you know, from their residences, residences, they lived out in the 16th arrondissement where, you know, all these rich Americans were running around in the interwar years. And they opted for uh, acceptability. So in the end, they argued that men should be wearing slip and women should be wearing slip and what they called cache-saint, so kind of a bra or a halter top. And... That was in public, but then in private, I've seen video of a film that was made on, on their installation, the Ile de Levant down in the Mediterranean, certainly were practicing nudism and accounts of people who had contact with the Durville um, recognized that that's exactly where they thought things would go, but they weren't willing to push for social change. They, ref- they, they reflected the society they were in and the ambiguities as much as, as anything. By contrast, Kiané de Mongeau, so if the Durville were the good cops, Kiané de Mongeau was the bad cop, and he embraced the movement. After one publication was closed down, he launched another one. 
when it was closed down, and the way this would be closed down usually is that the prefect of police of Paris and the other municipal police forces would refuse to allow the journal to be um, displayed, affiché in French, in um, in the kiosk um, or in the you know, sort of tobacco and press stores that, that were everywhere. And that was the death knell of a publication in a country where most of these things um, were purchased um, and were not by subscription, as, as would have been the case in the U.S. at the time. Mm-hmm. So they, uh, Guillaume de Mongeau, um really pushes the argument, he establishes an elite installation where an elite place where people can practice and really does not yield an inch. Um, and therefore has a series of, 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 of court battles as well as these skirmishes with the police. Um, so they, they represent two, by, by having the two, um, the two groups, that is the Derby Brothers on the one hand and Kiané de Mongeau and, and the people, his collaborators um, on the other, there is a way that um, their experience allows me in the book to clarify, elucidate, to pull apart some of the various developments that were happening in the movement during that period. Um, so what did the war change? What did the war do? The Second World War, I should say. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, and how did nudism and its history intersect with some of the things that we, you know, typically associate with the post-war period, you know, the rise of consumer culture, uh, changes in the nature of, you know, work and the economy and all of these kinds of things. What What's the connection there between the history that you're exploring in the book and the watershed moment that is World War II? I mean, there's something really uh, very funny about it. You mentioned consumer culture about um, nudism as a practice because, it, in a sense, it's a microcosm of tourism or leisure itself. I mean, you have to have a certain level of economic productivity to be able to afford to not do anything or for some people to be able to afford to not be doing something constantly. Um uh, so it takes a certain amount of wealth. It takes um, uh, a, 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 an already relatively prosperous society, ironically, because it doesn't take clothing. Mm-hmm. But in France, it often takes travel, um, which is expensive, and it takes leisure. Um, mm-hmm. And even though, you know, the Fonds Populaire gave everyone, we all know, two weeks of, of paid vacation, um, that doesn't amount to much if you can't afford to get to one of the places where it's legal to practice. Um, or if you've got, um, uh, or if you're a farmer and you don't yet have those two weeks of, of, of paid vacation. Um, so, uh, but to your question about w- w- what happened, um, what was the role of World War II? And there, I think there's an even weaker argument to be made for the impact of the war on post-war practice in that nudism um, did not exist in an organized way during the Second World War. And it's really remarkable because it did in Germany, um, contrary to some of the early scholarship, we now know that um, German groups that were not affiliated with the Social Democrats, which actually you know, the majority of nudists in the 1920s were Social Democrats, but for the, the bourgeois groups, the more centrist and right-wing um, part of the political spectrum, they in essence were merged into um, Nazi organizations. It basically became... Um, um, I mean, I'm oversimplifying and saying Nazi nudist groups, um, but they were. And mm-hmm. um, in 19, um, the early 1940s, um, legislation was established in Germany that made them completely acceptable. And it's one of those great examples because it reminds us again, like in so many other cases, that Vichy 
was uh, was French. It was not an imposition of the Germans. And many of the the, the prefects in southern France, um, in in the areas um, not occupied by by German troops till 1942, um, and that had um, prefects um, appointed by by Vichy. So there's no way that you can say there was a there was another German influence operating behind the scenes, influencing the, the prefects. Um, were quite adamant that no nudism would exist, and undertook. Um, uh, efforts that didn't exist in the same way in, in Germany and they had nothing to do with the politics of the groups. So the movement really had to reconstitute itself and it, in, uh, after the Second World War. So if, if the war had a major impact, it would be in the sense that the, the, the groups um, either had the, the, the burden or the opportunity to reconstitute themselves and to figure out how they were going to justify their practices, how they were going to make all of this work. So there's a new leadership after 1945, even though it came from the ranks of the people involved in the movement in the interwar years. So the last sort of the second half of the book, Steve, is really focused on it's not that you don't talk about place, uh, places and rents in the first sure. couple of chapters, but in the second part of the book, you really focus on these three sites um, uh, L'Ile de, de Levant, Montalivet, and Cap d'Agde. Um, so I wanted to just ask you to give kind of a locations for all of these places. Yes. And then I guess I have a question about the extent to which, you know, the book is a history of these practices and uh, of tourism and movement of people. But insofar mm-hmm. as you're interested in place and these natural spaces, um, would you say that the book contributes to something we might call an environmental history? Yeah, you ask good questions. <laughs> uh, I, I'm lucky in that the, 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 you know, I didn't, the, the organization of a book comes for, for, for most of us, I think, from the, the, the material that we're dealing with. And I, I was fortunate that the Durville brothers established um, uh, an, what's all called in English a nudist colony, um, on the Ile de Levant, which is uh, in the Mediterranean, uh, off the coast of Yerre or Le Vendou, down off of the, the it's part of the department of the Var, um, off the coast there. And they did that in the interwar years, but it really thrived after World War II. So I could use that as a transition um, to move from these earlier groups that had installations that were quite small um, with the individuals to the chapter three, talking about the Ile de Levant um, that had been of the Durville brothers, and then Montalivet, which is a creation of um, Albert Lecoq. And then by the time we get to, to Cap d'Agde, I can't point to an individual um, who, was, uh, who was particularly important. So you're right, it, the, the book kind of shifts over its course from focusing on individuals to places, even though there are places earlier and there are individuals later. Sure. Um, it, 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 it was nice that that middle chapter, chapter three, allowed me to make that transition that didn't do violence to chronology um, or, frankly, the facts. Um, so in the second part of the book, as you point out, I deal with the Ile de Levant. Um, and that was an area, um, like I said, that the Durville brothers established in the 30s that began welcoming large numbers of nudists, um, up to 30,000 in the early 1950s, on a relatively small space, uh, in a relatively small space, particularly as the French Navy 
was taking over big chunks, uh, most of the island, for um, missile tests um, in or projectile tests um, in the late 1950s. And of course, wherever there's a, a, a conflict, um, a difference of opinion about how a space is going to be used, that leaves a nice paper trail. So the municipality of Yer, the, the, which had control or was part of the commune, the, the municipality of Yer, um, uh, had control over the Ile de Levant, um, wanted to preserve um, this as a space for new practices and therefore fought pretty hard with other French authorities, including the French Navy, to mm. preserve. And then the fourth chapter um, deals with Albert Lecoq, but in, as, as part of it, um, focuses on Montalive, which is um, on the Aquitaine coast um, to the northwest um, of Bordeaux, in the, the, the commune and the municipality of Vendée Montalive. And... Uh, there, um, some of the same practices occurred. It's uh, anybody who's seen the Aquitaine beaches are these huge expanses of sand. And at the time, there were very few people there. Um, while there was a bit of an infrastructure, because, of course, that's where the, 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 the German Atlantic Wall had been built during World War II. So Montalive, ironically enough, which would be welcoming a fair number of Germans in the 1950s and after, um, profited from the fact that the cement road that ran to it, the paved road that ran to it, um, was built by the Germans as part of fortifications. And in fact, all along that coast, you can still see um, the blockhouses that increasingly are falling into into the sea. I was very lucky that the the press um, was generous with um, illustrations as well as maps. I actually have a picture of one of those blockhouses that's now toppled over as the as the beach is being eroded. Um, and then the, the fifth of these spaces, Cap Dagd, really came into its own, was found in the late 50s, but really came into its own in the 1960s, in particular the 1970s. And whereas the Ile de Levant was barely developed, Montalive was very much a, a sort of organization and Lecoq-controlled camp. Cap Dagd um, was in a space that the French government decided in the 1960s needed to be remade to welcome tourists. And Rosemary Wakeman and, and Ellen Furlow have done terrific work on the, and, and others have done terrific work on the remaking of that coast. But there was already a nudist camp there. So there's a very interesting discussion that takes place within the 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 um, it's called the, the Racine mission. So it's got one of those long you know, aménagement du territoire and I'm sure I'm forgetting a couple of nouns there. Um, and it just got sh- shorthanded as, you know, the Hassim mission. Uh, but there's a long discussion that goes on about, you know, should we allow this to happen? And, of course, the guys who ran it, the Ultra brothers, and large numbers of international nudists got involved to argue that, of course, the French state should. These are people who spend a lot of money, more than the average tourist. They tend to come in the off-season because, you know, um, as we both know um, very well, most French um, families are on vacation from, you know, the, right after the first week of July when the kids are out of school and up to about the first of September. These international tourists, sometimes um, older, sometimes younger, would come before that high season and they'd stay afterwards. So, so it was very lucrative for the municipality. And in the end, the French state um, not only agreed to cup dog to becoming a portion of this, this you know, redeveloped coast um, with state support, um, a portion of that remaining um, nudist, and in fact being developed as nudist, um, the so-called quartier naturiste at Cap d'Agde, 
but then took the same model or a comparable model and used it on the Aquitaine coast um, mm-hmm. for sponsorship of the creation of Oonat that I referred to earlier. That happened more in the early 1970s. So Languedoc was, was, was developed earlier. But again, these three places are all, I mean, it's, it's a comparable development. And of course, Nudists, international and French, are comparing the places all the time, trying to use arguments about what's practiced elsewhere to justify what should be done, what they'd like to have done where they are. But because each one is a little bit different, they allow me to to take apart um, the assumptions that are built into it, how the decisions are getting made. It just becomes richer because Mm -hmm. I'm able to deal with these three different places. Um, and then the other part of your great question um, was, is this environmental history in addition to everything else? And you know, that's a very good question. I'm glad that you see it that way. Um, I, I had a, a, a student who has done a lot of work in geography. And what she said is that in geography, we call this a history of spaces. Mm. And that's what the environment is, after all. So I guess my answer to your question is yes. Um, it is a history of spaces, uses of spaces, um, how people legitimate why they should use the space and how they should use the space. And any, whenever possible, of course, if there's a conflict over the usage of this space, that provides a rich domain for, for us as historians to explore um, what, you know, what's taken for granted on both sides of the argument, um, but also um, you know, what the agendas are. Um, of people who are trying to argue for their particular usage of this little piece of the environment. Well, and it does seem like uh, the figures that you're talking about um, and the history that you're exploring, uh, at least in the post-war period before even, are engaged in the question of what the natural is, right? Um, yeah. For in in a physical environment, surrounding physical environment, but also for human beings. And this sort of makes me want to ask you more about this figure, Albert Lecoq, who becomes this primary advocate in France of nudism. Mm-hmm. And, and particularly, you know, as you were talking about who these people are and where they're coming from, the idea that Lecoq, you know, drew on and, and, and used in his sort of advocacy ideas about psychology, uh, child development, sexuality, this idea of a kind of healthy human being. Um, and I, and I wanted to ask you to say, to say more about that, what his, shift is in terms of, you know, from earlier figures who are advocates of nudism, what, what does Lecoq bring to, to the, to the discourse of nudism and to, and to the movement? Yes. One, one of his um, admirers referred to him as a manager. Um, and in, in many respects, that was his gift. He wasn't that much of an innovator. What he figured out was to take the health oriented um, agenda of the Derville brothers who, after all, were doctors, mm. and to use that to argue for the social acceptability of out-and-out nudism. So when he used the term naturism, he's really the one that, that used the term naturism to mean nudism and other stuff. And yet, if you think about it, he was, in arguing that, that people should be nude, he was, he was really following publicly the agenda of Kiané de Mongeau. Um, and some of the ideas, not all of them, but some of the ideas in Kiené de Mongeau's circle about the, the preference of nudism for maintenance of health, but also for a psychological, as you point out, a, a, a psychological health. So Lecoq argued that um, 
uh, nudism was uh, ipso facto um, uh, sex ed, that there would not be a problem for young people if they grew up in a naturist environment in the, the in adolescence and in their 1920s, because after all, there wouldn't be a fake mystery. Um, nudism ha- had, after all, been separated from sexuality, and that would be healthy. Mm-hmm. But, you know, all of this stuff is ironic. Um, I mean, all of life is ironic, if you think about it. Um, uh, you know, just as Cup Dog was um, a cemented-in apartment installation where people were saying that they were getting back to nature, or Montalive had 15,000 people in very close proximity, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> thousands on the beach at once, um, in relatively close, close quarters, who had to use a, far, a fair amount of, of energy, meaning fossil fuel, to get themselves there, and where there would have to be a built-up infrastructure in order to take care of human waste and, and the provisioning of food and all that kind of stuff. Similarly, there's a, there's a fundamental irony built into Lecoq arguing that, um, that sex ed would just occur um, if people saw new bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it would necessarily lead to um, to psychological health. In some ways, it's kind of the opposite of the argument. Um, and these are the people he was arguing against. And it's opposite of the argument that um, any nudity must be bad because it will lead to sex. You know, the the the, the arguments of his critics. Um, and he really didn't define it any further. Um, he and other uh, mainstream naturists after 1945 really um, avoided conversation of sexuality beyond there won't be problems of sexuality if you do what we say. That is, if you go to nudist groups and you you follow the rules of the camps. Mm-hmm. By the late 1960s, and I don't think there's any coincidence at all, before 1968 and after 1968, right before he died in, um, in 1969, he argued that um, sexuality was all along the elephant in the room and that young people in the late 1960s in France who were saying um, we need to be more open about um, how this works in what ways um, is nudism uh, uh, supposed to promote psychological health. Um, So to, to, um, uh, to give you an example in the 1930s, Kiani de Mongeau argued that, if you, if there was a, an exposure of young people to new bodies, um, then the the boys would not masturbate, and if they didn't masturbate, then they wouldn't become inverti or homosexuals. And if they didn't become homosexuals, they wouldn't get VD. Now I recognize that those three things mm-hmm. um, there's no linkage in our minds, but there were linkages made regularly in the interwar years, as Carolyn Dean's book has pointed out, mm-hmm. and he just kind of repeats that. Um, after 1945, to the extent that he comments it, on it at all. And then by the late 1960s, is saying, no, 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 no. Um, we need to rethink these positions. Let's have a conversation. And to a large extent, the mainstream organization never had that conversation. Or when it did in the 70s and 80s, it fractured over it. Um, once they were successful, that is, there's widespread nudism that's socially acceptable, there wasn't a reason for people to hew to groups, and they really didn't have to justify, find arguments for justifying what they were doing. Mm-hmm. You say at a certain point in the in the book, Steve, that that there was a social, and you know what you just said made me think of this again, and, and a sexual conservatism 
uh, to nudism, particularly in the 1950s. And I think that might not seem intuitive <laughs> to most uh, to most people. So what you were just saying about, I mean, is it strictly speaking a defensive uh, posture or is can we really see in some strange way or maybe not so strange way that nudism reflects some of the things that we might in a kind of uh, global Western way associate with the fifties and the conformism yeah. of the fifties and the, the conservatism, moral conservatism of the fifties. Does, does nudism actually express that rather than some liberation? Yeah, I, I think you're right that it does. Um, I'm amazed in looking at the, 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 longer, I don't want to say long durée, you know, because they're really not talking, the analyst meant very long periods when they use that term, but a longer duration uh, of of history that embraces the interwar years and the post-war years. Because I, I continue, when I'm looking at both um, in sort of the same framework of analysis, to be surprised by, despite knowing about the 1950s all along, but I'm surprised in many ways by how socially conservative the 50s were compared with the 30s as well as the 20s. Um, and I think that the naturists are reflecting that broader sort of zeitgeist of the 1950s. Um, and, you know, there, there's a strategy on Lecoq's part. He certainly doesn't want to do too much that is going to condemn the movement in the eyes of most people, not because he wouldn't be able to figure out how to take his pants off, um, but because the movement would not be able to grow. From everything that I've read, he earnestly believed that people would be better off. Um, and, you know, sometimes there are proclamations of world peace and everything else, but people would be better off if they practiced um, what he preached. And so I think that he, he believed it. He avoided those conversations about sexuality of, in the sort of you know, sub rosa discussions that that uh, that that occurred and conversations I've had with people in the movement. I'm under. I've been given no indication that you know Lecoq was using the movement in any way for you know um, spouse swapping or anything anything else. He appears to have really believed the agenda he set out. Um, but as a manager, um, he he noticed that society was changing in the in the late 1960s. And argued that if the movement was going to be successful, it had to change as society was changing. So hmm. given that shift in the 60s, um, I think you're right. His strategy in the 1950s was to do something that was very comparable in a context where he didn't see um, a better way, a better way to proceed. So ironically enough, um, he was not arguing that there was any particular liberation. Um, he'd sometimes use the term, as many naturists did, of, of liberty. Mm -hmm. um, um, but often it's it was put in kind of a democratic format. You know, mm -hmm. we should be allowed um, to do what we want to do that does not harm other people. Kind of a classic definition of liberalism. Mm -hmm. Well, this you know easily leads me to to my next set of questions, which is about the state. You know, you've mentioned a couple of times what the state had an interest in in terms of developing tourism and other things, and so where. Where does the French state, French legislation, French politics fit into all of this? And, um, you know, what was political, if, if anything, about, about nudism in France? Sure. Um, you've probably figured out from, from the book and, and our conversation, like most historians of France, I'm a very serious Francophile. <laughs> and one of the things I, I love most about France is the gap between um, en principe and en réalité. Right. So, so you know, what's in principle and what's in reality? And 
en principe, nudisme was, was presumably illegal in France. Um, there was an article in the, in the, the criminal code, um, article um, 330, that um, was against um, uh, gross indecency, would be how we would translate, you know, outrage public à la pudeur. And that remained on the books until the 1990s, um, when it was replaced by something equally sort of broad that you could read about anything into. Um, but, but because it, 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 it was broad, um, it had to be interpreted. And we have a tendency to think of France as a place that had, uh, uh, you know, the Roman law tradition of codes without jurisprudence. And it, it's just not true. Um, just as there are law codes in, you know, the U.S. or in Canada, um, and there are laws in Britain, too. It's not just precedent. There are laws and then jurisprudence. Um, so even if you accept that, that assumption of a, of a Roman law model, nevertheless, there's a significant amount of jurisprudence. And so as issues arose, um, not only did municipalities have to decide what they were going to prosecute or what they were going to, who they were going to arrest and who they were going to try to prosecute, um, uh, en réalité, as opposed to, you know, in principle, but judges have to figure out how to um, apply the law. And what it meant was that over time, the law got applied differently in different municipalities, in places that did not have problems attracting tourists and where there were large numbers of people. There was no move to change how Article 330 was, was read. But in areas that didn't have that kind of presence, municipalities argued for um, not only on the level of what they enforced and they didn't enforce, but in cases of problems, argued for a different approach. Um, so this is one of those cases where, you know, while we may think of France as being a very centralized state, which of course um, it was and to a large extent still is, nevertheless, there's a fair amount of local variation, hmm. uh, sometimes under the radar of the prefects, um, in other cases known by the prefects, um, so there's a difference among municipalities, and there's a difference in different departments, depending on how the prefects interpreted um, the law. Well, Steve, you know, the book, we talked about this already, the fact that the book sort of ends in the mid-1970s. And I just wondered if, you know, what your thoughts might be on, well, the legacies of this into the 80s, 90s, and then even up into the contemporary period. Uh, you know, do you see uh, things, issues in contemporary France, whether to do with tourism or the body or sexuality that, that reflect this history that you explore in the book? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, there's so much going on. I hesitate to, to respond because mm -hmm. I almost as though I'm going to be blocking out other, other things that are occurring. Um, I have to say that I, I continue to be amazed that, um, starting usually in about May, um, Media reports in France and the local and national press and, and, and in broadcasting will inevitably have to have a series of stories about nudism. Mm. And as you might expect as, as, a, as a North American, you know, it's sort of titillating as well as um, a factual um, approach to the whole thing. So I don't think that most French people, even though there's much more um, widespread and we think that, you know, up to 1.5 million people practice nudism in some form or another um, in France today, that it that it still does not sometimes or in the case of many people have a sexual charge of one kind or another. Mm -hmm. um, despite the fact that the movement argued very seriously, huh, particularly in the 1950s and 1960s, that it, it couldn't. It simply wouldn't and it couldn't. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so if the so I don't think that the movement changed necessarily um, the 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 way people think about nudism um, on French beaches. Um, it's it did, however, obviously have a very serious impact in the actual practices. So, um, and this I I, um, I I'm paying attention to the movement because you know I've, I've written the book, but I continue to also be amazed at the number of people when I talk about the book who proceed to then tell me about an experience that they had in France. You know, they were driving along and all of a sudden <laughs> these people were on a beach or, you know, they went along the Kostaki 10 and discovered that there are a whole series of new beaches. Um, and, you know, I, I, I ask follow-up questions, but often I'm nodding like, well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's the reality. Um, and that uh, there certainly, the, the movement certainly was successful in arguing that there ought to be, as this German in 1963 put it, an approach of live and let live on on French beaches. And, you know, that, of course, still doesn't characterize those very small and dense beaches um, that that are the norm on the Côte d'Azur. But for anybody, you know, I know you're on the on the West Coast, and for anybody who's who's been in Aquitaine, it, it, it reminds you of... Um, uh, the beaches that, that that are kind of from Northern California and Oregon and Washington and on up that are these, you know, they, they can be expansive in the case of Oregon, these expansive beaches with very much a sort of live and let live approach to it. Mm-hmm. And given the, the arguments I've seen about the use of Akiten beaches in the 1960s and 1970s in, in the paper trail, that wasn't always the case. Um, there, there are very definitely kind of a sense, uh, there is a sense today in France that, you know, what's it hurting? Um, and there, there are, um, we now know, codes that then get established on those beaches. So there's certain places that, that if there are going to be, you know, um, meeting places, that tends to be in the dunes and away from the easily accessible ones, which is where the families are. And people kind of self-segregate according to how they're going to use that beach. Uh-huh. Um, so that's what I mean by people imposing their own rules. Um, certainly today in France, and, you know, it didn't just come from the, from the nudist movement. We could, again, look at the publicité and the way people talk about, about, about um, bodies. Um, but certainly um, the 21st century sees uh, very exposed bodies in France in, in a commercial context, um, on uh, um, and in 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 um, and and along beaches. Well, Steve, I've taken up a lot of your time, but I just have one last question, which is, what are you working on now? Um, I've got a couple of projects. I'm finishing up um, a little sort of general interest book that I hope will also be used as a textbook on the history of rubber. And I know that doesn't sound like it's probably very connected to to this book, but it's actually connected to an earlier book I wrote about about Michelin mm-hmm. and. Um, in teaching world history, which I've done for several years now, um, I've really wanted to look at a commodity that allows me to talk about um, about similarities in how labor was treated, issues of race, issues of gender, issues of class, um, assumptions about resistance in the form of labor movements in both areas of the, the so-called non-West and in um, Europe and the United States so that I could allow students to see the interconnectedness of, of the world. And, and this little book that I've just finished, I think, will, will allow me to do that. And I hope other people like it, too. Um, in terms of uh, 
research projects regarding France, which is probably what most of um, your listeners would be more interested in, um, I started a, a new book uh, project, a couple of new book projects, but the one I think I'm really going to focus on now um, is involves the, the, the Côte d'Azur and Nice in particular to track um, what I call Mediterranean migrations. And I really love that book by Julia Clancy Smith about um, really um, Euro- Europeans in Tunisia. And I'd like to track both elite and uh, popular migrations into the Côte d'Azur um, and the, the, what's often called the making of the French Riviera. Mm. And usually by that, you know, they're referring to these imagined identities that come through tourism. And yeah, you know, a lot of American writers and musicians, of course, did. Um, Europeans went and imagined identities. And these are always these sort of touristic, free-floating, not very tethered um, identities. But, you know, the people who really built the Côte d'Azur were immigrants. Um, they were Italians, above all. Um, and after World War II, a lot of North Africans. And I'd really like to have kind of one place where I'm analyzing these different migrants, these different people who are coming together and how they saw themselves and how they saw each other in order to describe something um, something a little bit bigger. Um, I'm really sort of dissatisfied with chunks of the, the not, not really the history of tourism, but sort of tourism studies because of that, that sort of the set of free floating assumptions, you know, people kind of, they imagine this and they imagine that. And in fact, um, there are very close connections and identities of self and, and identities that are being projected on other people um, that I think that this particular study will allow me to explore. Well, those both sound like really uh, fantastic projects and I'll look forward to, to seeing them come out and perhaps just discussing them with you in, in, once they're out in new book form. Steve, I just want to thank you so much for joining me and for writing this wonderful book. Uh, thank you so much for the uh, interviewing me today, Roxanne. It's, uh, it's been a real pleasure.